Peacekeeping has to have a component that is strict impartiality so that you maintain your credibility. Professional officers who are truly committed, not only being good warriors, but for a season, being peacekeepers. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by the ever fabulous Professor Christopher Sands of Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Hi, hi, Scotty. I'm feeling oh, pretty extra fabulous because we have such a great guest today. We do have a great guest today, Chris. I'm very excited. We're gonna we're gonna take a walk around the world, and we're gonna take a walk through history uh, with a very distinguished American who has also written a book uh, that we will describe. It's called Yanks and Blue Berets, American UN Peacekeepers in the Middle East. And not only is it an American story, but there is a Canadian angle to this. And Chris, just in full disclosure for our listeners, and we will get into this, uh, but my brother, Colonel Mike Fallon, is featured in this book, and that's what got me interested in it. Uh, and we're very lucky that Colonel Lingenfelter, Colonel L. Scott Lingenfelter, the author of the book uh, and a recovering politician, <laughs> uh, is joining us. And why don't I turn it over to you to introduce him properly, and then we'll get into what I think is going to be a really wonderful dialogue. Absolutely, Scotty. No, thank you very much for uh, for teeing up the personal connection. Uh, Colonel uh, Scott Ligenfelter is a retired U.S. Army colonel, former delegate in the Virginia House of Delegates, and he's the author of the book you mentioned, Yanks and Blue Berets. Uh, he's originally from Richmond, Virginia, uh, graduated with a B.A. in history from the Virginia Military Institute, and uh, has an M.A. in government and foreign affairs from the University of Virginia. Um, he went into the military and had a very distinguished career, including assignments worldwide, reaching, obviously, the rank of colonel. But notably, he served as a military observer with the United Nations Truce Supervision Organization and participated in combat during Op Operation Desert Storm. He commanded significant military units during his military career, including the Army's largest multiple launch rocket system, MLRS Battalion, in South Korea. His expertise was crucial in the 93-94 North Korea crisis, which some of us remember very keenly, and retired in 2001 after 28 years of active duty. Post-military, he supported the U.S. Missile Defense Agency strategic planning, worked in emergency management, homeland security, and border security, served in the Virginia House of Delegates 2002 to 2018, so he's a recovering uh, army officer and a recovering politician, which is double recovery. That's always a good sign. Um, where, where he represented Prince William and Fauquier counties. He's a published author, and and the book is what we're here to talk about, which is a book, Colonel, about you the U.S. military in the United Nations peacekeeping operations uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere. Um, so, Colonel, thank you very much. This is a story that those of us who follow Canada, we know about Canada's Blue Berets, but I think sometimes we don't know as much about America's. Well, thanks for having me, all of you, and I'm delighted to talk about this book. Um, so why don't we get at it? No, Let, please. Let's do it. And let, let's start, uh, Colonel Lingenfelter, with... You so the UN as a, as an entity in t in this day and age where it's 2023 um, is back in some ways in the limelight because of what's happening with Russia Ukraine. But there were some years where 
people in the U.S. in particular wonder why we would be part of the U.N. And I think your book um, that explores the role that you played in U.N. peacekeeping as well as other forces is, is really interesting. So maybe let's start with what were you hoping to accomplish with the book and, and you know, kind of why did you write it? Well, it's, it's a great opening question. It's one that I usually tackle uh, straight away when I, when I talk about the book and when I lecture about it. Very few people, Scotty, actually were aware and are aware even today of the U.S. role in U.N. peacekeeping. We've had American officers participating for literally decades, since back to 1948 uh, in Middle East peacekeeping. In fact, believe it or not, some of the early chiefs of staff of the United Nations Truce Supervision Organization, which is an unarmed peace supervision unit that has been active uh, in the Middle East since 1948, were actually U.S. Marines that were in the leadership. So the United States had this very rich association with uh, UN peacekeeping, in this case, with the United Nations Truce Supervision Organization uh, in based in Jerusalem and, and arrayed throughout the Levant in the Middle East. And I wanted to write a book about this to share with Americans that we have had an important role in Middle East peacekeeping. And so I reached out to 17 other surviving uh, UNMOs, which was the acronym we used for United Nations Military Observer, who were assigned uh, to UNSO, your brother being one of them. And I dug in to ask them for their stories and what they experienced and what they thought about their time when for a season, they were peacekeepers and not necessarily warriors. And so the book addresses the dynamics of peacekeeping, the inherent dangers in peacekeeping, and the importance of professionalism by the contributing nations who participate in peacekeeping. In other words, there were many lessons we learned from 1948 well into the 90s about peacekeeping that may have application today. And I wanted to write a book about it. Well, I, I love that. And and Chris, what you um, may or may not know, our listeners may not know, is uh, my so my brother was a UN peacekeeper um, when I was a little kid. And so I always had, and he was in the Middle East, and it's, you know, Colonel Lingenfelter talks about it in the book, but I always had this global view because my big brother was in these exotic, to me, places. What I didn't know and what my brother Mike Fallon didn't know, and I think perhaps only discovered because of Colonel Lingenfelter's research, and the book is dedicated to this group, is the UN peace, let me get, let me get this right, I'm just flipping to the page. The dedication of this book, Yanks and Blueberries, says dedicated to the memory and honor of all former United Nations peacekeeping forces, 1948 to 1988, awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1988. And you know what? My brother had no idea that he and his brothers in truce in arms and in truce 
observation won a Nobel Prize. So I just think that's a really interesting uh, factoid here. But uh, enough about me and my family, Chris. Why don't I turn it back to you to to engage our distinguished guest in a, in in more dialogue about this? Oh, it's it's always okay to hear your story, Scotty. And it's fascinating that your brother was involved. And I remember when the UN conferred the Nobel Prize on peacekeepers. It's one of those things a bit like a Time Magazine person of the year that isn't a person, it's, it's something more abstract that I, I don't know that the honorees all were aware that they had been honored. Um, Colonel, can you talk a little bit about what you were just saying, in fact, the, the business about the professionalism, the different skills required for someone who is in UN peacekeeping, what marks this group out and what makes a successful peacekeeping nation or more importantly, a successful peacekeeping uh, serviceman? Well, it really goes to the core of why you should select uh, nations and military services that, in fact, bring uh, competency and professionalism to the UN peacekeeping efforts or to any peacekeeping effort. Um, so let's let's back up for a second. The role of the U.S. Uh, and its influence on UNSO. Uh, which was the UN Truce Supervision Organization uh, in the Middle East. We had among the, the 36 of us, and at any one time there were 36 American officers assigned to UNSO, um, of which most were Army, Marines, some Navy, some Air Force. But most all of us had some combat experience, and we had certainly been trained in our combat arms to do that. And several of us were what we would call foreign area officers who had been trained specifically in Middle East studies. Mike, Mike Fallon had been at American University. I had been at the University of Virginia and there were others, but not everybody was a FAO. Uh, they brought a rich background of experience. And the U.S., quite frankly, Chris, was a, was a power player. Uh, with the United Nations. It, it's no secret the United States gives a great deal of money to the UN. And we also had, uh, we were also major diplomatic players uh, in the Middle East as well with all the parties to the conflict. So it made sense for the United States to certainly have a role in UNSO. And we also had, quite frankly, in the Middle East, a significant U.S. force presence just hours away at land and sea and air, Sigonella and Naval Air Station in Sicily. We had Army units based in Vicenza, Italy, and of course, European Command. Uh, there was a very large contingent of U.S. forces uh, supporting NATO. And if things went badly in the Middle East for some reason, the United States was there quickly uh, to help observers on the ground uh, if they needed assistance of some sort. So it was really important that we send highly qualified people uh, to this job. And I believe that, and I and I think I demonstrate in the book that the, the U.S. and indeed Canadian officers had a rich tradition in peacekeeping. And their professionalism as well helped leaven uh, professionalism uh, in the uh, peacekeeping business. I don't know if that answers your question, but it's certainly part of the answer. No, it's fascinating. Well, and... So it is an interesting historical look at things that occurred, you know, decades ago. I guess the question I have for you, Colonel, is do you think there's a role for 
peacekeeping now. I mean, we're we're in we're into war fighting. We're into asymmetrical war. We're into cyber, uh, you know, mutually assured destruction around the world. Is 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 UN peacekeeping as as we knew it historically still relevant uh, in your judgment? Well, I think more specifically, Scotty, I think peacekeeping itself is relevant. Um, I think it is a it's a it's a questionable proposition. It's a debatable proposition, better put, as to whether or not it needs to be UN led. But nonetheless, there were some real lessons um, that we learned. Uh, from our experience in in the Middle East, for example, American lessons, the things that we learned as American officers. Well, the upside was we learned about other nationalities and how they operated in peacekeeping. We also came to understand the complexities of peacekeeping. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is so I can answer your underlying question, which is, you know, is there a role today? There was real value in the experience uh, that we attained. And some of that experience that we learned is peacekeeping has to have a component that is strict impartiality so that you maintain your credibility. You have to have professionalism, professional officers who are truly committed uh, to not only being good warriors, but for a season being peacekeepers and drawing on that warrior experience. There are lessons that others can teach you. In other words, the Americans didn't know everything. The Canadians didn't know everything. But then guess what? Not everybody else knows everything either. So there's a lot of mutual learning when you bring international groups together uh, to work in cooperation. And it also very much helps with future relationships that may be outside of peacekeeping, say, within some other military coalition. So what's the downside that we learned, the downside of our experience? Peacekeeping is inherently dangerous. You know, we had one of our contributors, uh, Colonel Lenny Subko, who uh, Mike knows and was a Marine there uh, during the, just before I arrived, actually, who said, you have to understand one important truth. Everybody lies. And what he was trying to get across is that in a very contentious environment where you're doing peacekeeping, you can't trust everything that the combatants in the or the parties to the conflict tell you. So it's really important to be impartial and it's really important to build trust, because if you aren't trustworthy, quite frankly, you could be killed. And I write about that in the book. And. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. And I, I was just to say, if nations contributing forces regard peacekeeping as some kind of one-off operation, Scotty, the parties to the conflict will immediately understand that, and they will begin to push back and undermine the peacekeeping operation. Well, exactly right. And and you make another point in the book, uh, Colonel, which is how. Um, how awkward it is to be assigned as a peacekeeper to a region that does not want peace. So we're going to take or isn't looking for peace and a region that wants to fight each other and they want to win. Both sides want to win, whether it's Israel, whether it's Palestine. Uh, but we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, um, I know Chris has some more questions for you. And I, and I also want to bring it to the modern day. So we'll be right back. 
What did Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King and President Woodrow Wilson have in common? Yes, they both led their countries during wartime, but they were also the only leaders of their countries to hold a PhD. At the Wilson Center's Canada Institute, we follow these academic civil servants to bring the public the best nonpartisan research and analysis. We're the only think tank in DC focused on this vital relationship. So in addition to the great repartee you get to hear on Canusa Street, head over to wilsoncenter.org to check out the Canada Institute's work and events. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everyone. I'm Chris Sands, and I'm here with the fabulous Scotty Greenwood. See, two can play that uh, game, Scotty. Uh, and our special guest, Colonel Scott Lingenfelter, who uh, has written the book, Yanks and Blue Berets, talking about the American experience with UN peacekeeping. And uh, Colonel, if you'll forgive me, there's a sort of academic argument that's made about peacekeeping you know, in, in the literature, which is that during the Cold War, it was a kind of way for the U.S. and the Soviet Union, which were often fighting proxy wars or proxy conflicts to to sort of cement a peace. We just decide, we would agree, U.S. and the Soviet Union on our side, we would just stop fueling the conflict with weapons and money. And then it ne we needed some observation of that truce. And so great, the Canadians were there, uh, maybe others. Um, I wonder what you think about that and the connection. Is that too simplistic? And it goes to where I think Scotty wants to go, which is bringing this to the present day. But what was the Cold War unique period? And did that affect the ability of the U.S. to operate in these kind of missions? Well, the Cold War definitely affected our ability to operate uh, effectively in the, in the Middle East and in the Cold War. I, I'm, I'm not completely sure that um, that that was the reasoning for mm -hmm. uh, the emergence of peacekeeping. I mean, quite frankly, UNSO came to life in 1948 with the birth of Israel and when the wars between the Arabs and the Israelis broke out. And those, those wars continued through 1973. And when 1973 occurred and we separated the warring parties in the Golan Heights, of which, by the way, Canada was a major player, even though the United States negotiated, uh, Henry Kissinger actually negotiated the agreement that put the United uh, Nations uh, UNDOF, the disengagement observer force, in the Golan Heights to separate the Israelis and the uh, Syrians, that that was the advent, quite frankly, of the Russians actually contributing then the Soviet Union uh, military observers to UNSO. Before that, they were not part of it. And so that really doesn't show up until much later in the Cold War, indeed, just a decade and a half before the fall of the former Soviet Union. So the peacekeeping objective early on was to do just that, to separate the Israelis and the Arabs and calm things down. We'd just come out of World War II. And here a major conflict was already erupting in the Middle East. It had already forced Great Britain out of the former Palestine. And so it was very important for the United States and, and the UN to bring some sort of peace regimen uh, to, the, to the Middle East at the time. So, so it, it does appear that peacekeeping gives the superpowers, quote, a break from uh, the Cold War. But in point of fact, I don't think it was, uh, it was intended to be that way. Uh, I will tell you, in my first four months that I was assigned to UNSO, I was actually in Damascus, uh, two U.S. officers, myself and another Marine, 
I was Army guy and another Marine, Denny Lindeman, Colonel Denny Lindeman. Uh, and we were assigned there along with 18 Russian observers. Uh, the U.S. And the, and, and the Russians, by agreement of the UNDOF arrangement, did not go into the Golan Heights. Uh, and at the time, there were many countries in the Middle East who were skittish about allowing Russians in their country. In fact, of the 36 Russian military observers, there were 36 U.S., 36 uh, Russian to be equal. Uh, the 18 of them were assigned to Syria, which was friendly to Russia, and 18 were assigned to Egypt, which was friendly to Russia. But Jordan wouldn't have them, and, and Lebanon wouldn't have them, and the Israelis wouldn't have them. And so there were two U.S. guys and 18 Russians, and and the Russians and, and the U.S. guys, actually, we got along very, very well. We uh, we learned a lot about each other. Uh, everybody was sure the other group was a spy, uh, but we used, <laughs> we used to joke and and I would have a Russian friend of mine say, Captain Lingenfelder, why only two U.S., 18 Russian? And I said, well, we just want to keep things equal. You know, so we would always have a big laugh about it. <laughs> and, uh, and, but it was, all, it was all in good fun. Um, and we did learn a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and I had been, a, as I said, studied Russian foreign policy in grad school. So... I brought a bit of knowledge about Russia along with me. So we had good fun debating it. But no, I don't think that it was based. It was a Cold War inspired uh, thing as much as it was just uh, real politic. You want to divide these people from fighting each other. Now, I also note and just, we're going to dispel some myths here for people who haven't read the book. But I know a lot of Canadians are very proud of their military tradition in peacekeeping, but sometimes as an alternative to war fighting, uh, like, well, we just do peacekeeping because we're lovable Canadians and, and we're proud of that. Uh, they should be proud of it. But you make a point in the book that it, peacekeeping isn't being the, uh, you know, the, the traffic guard who crosses the kids on the way to elementary school. It's not like that. You need a professional trained person ready for combat using those skills and being professional in a different setting. So it's not an alternative to the military, is it? Uh, to regular military defense? No, no, it's not. In fact, in in point of fact, um, good warriors who have the expectation that their country will be on a peacekeeping mission need a formalized training program. You know, when we showed up in the Middle East, Canadians, Americans, I mean, we there was a, a rich contribution. I mean, Argentina, Australia, Canada, Denmark, uh, Norway, Sweden, uh, the Netherlands, yeah, wow. I mean, I've, I've left a bunch out, but there were there were quite a few there. And the first thing that we would do is go to our training of three or four days, our formal peacekeeping training, which quite frankly was fairly thin and irrelevant. I mean, we it was basically driver training. It was learning the regulations of the UN. It was how not to resist if you're, you know, if parties of the conflict were to steal your personal equipment and so on and so forth. Lacking totally. Uh, both Chris and Scotty, lacking totally was any real discussion about how you de-escalate uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, situations. How do you resolve disputes? How do you maintain peace? Now, interestingly, the Nordic countries, I think, had a better peacekeeping focus than we did. They actually had some training put together before they showed up. Americans didn't. I mean, we can't. We 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 were warriors who, for a season, were peacekeepers. 
And I do think the Canadians had a better grasp of what to uh, to expect uh, when they arrived than some of our U.S. compadres. I I I used to say some of the best training, peacekeeping training that I got was when I showed up. The Mike Fallons and the Lenny Supcos and the Denny Lindermans and uh, you know the Joe Services and the 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 different people who uh, Verge Bozeman's of the world, all Americans who who basically had been there for a while, could hand off to newbies um, what they had learned, and that was some of the best training uh, that we got. But that's not the ideal. The ideal is to have something uh, that truly gets military observers ready for this work. You mentioned Colonel. Uh, and it's true, you're something of a Russia expert and have been for decades. Um, so I want to bring it to the current day uh, because the Soviet Union is no more, but Russia certainly is looking to perhaps restore its former glory. I don't, I don't know. But Chris and I have had a couple of episodes uh, about the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, one of them is titled, I think they're Putin will lose and Putin will lose part two. <laughs> um, I, I think we still hope for that, although the conflict sure is taking a while. Um, would love to know your thoughts on the current conflict uh, that is happening in Europe. And let's let's hope that it comes to a close sometime soon. Uh, the second part of the question is, is there a role for the UN um, peacekeeping or a truce observation in a post-Russia-Ukraine uh, scenario? Well, there, there could be. And I qualify that by saying that the, the case for peacekeeping in Ukraine is, is hard to imagine at this point because there's so much fighting left to be done. I mean, they are implacable foes at this point. But again, Scotty, one of the reasons I wrote this book was... My, my fundamental belief about, about writing about things like this and in my first book, The Gulf War, is to harvest the lessons and bring them forward and apply them today. In the case of the Gulf War, there were many lessons, many things we did militarily correct during that war that we need to reincorporate into American military strategy today. Well, the same tr is true of peacekeeping. The United States, Canada, and others have had a rich, rich experience in peacekeeping. And it's a pity if those lessons go unlearned, if they, if they aren't brought forward. You know, the way I like to say it is you always go forward best by going back first. And this is a very important principle as you look at things military, of which peacekeeping is certainly uh, one of them. Let's take Ukraine, for example. I think one day peace will be possible, but there are several conditions that have to be met before we can get there. And we could have an entire podcast about what that is. And the question is, are we ready to consider the lessons we have learned from the past? As I say, as you go forward, you go forward best by going back first. We've had the experience of unsung since 1948 till the present. We've had the experience of the United Nations Interim Force in Lebanon, which your brother, Mike, was on the ground when it when it first deployed. That's right. Literally 
was leading units into position. That began in 1978. It was a very flawed organization, Unifil was. There are many lessons to be learned of how not to stand up a peace force in the case of uh, Unifil that we should bring forward. We should be learning those lessons to make sure we don't make the same mistakes. And of course, we had Kosovo in the 19, from 1999 until now. So we've learned much. One of the things we learned is you've got to get the configuration correct. And as readers go through my book, you'll, they'll see references to the UN Chapter 6, uh, Pacific Settlement of Disputes Articles, and Chapter 7, the action with respect to the threats of peace and breach. In other words, one, Chapter 6, is basically a peacekeeping relationship where all the parties to the conflict agree, yes, verily, we want peace. Whereas peace, the, the Chapter 7 peace, uh, is a situation where the UN goes in and kind of forces the hand toward peace through peace enforcement actions, i.e. armed forces. And so the question is, which one of those do you do? And which one has the greatest likelihood to be agreed to? I suspect that Chapter 6, the Peaceful Settlement of Disputes approach, which is almost always the avenue that the UN takes, might work. But we could also see a non-UN entity or coalition. And at this point, looking at it, I think that the best configuration might be some sort of coalition brought together uh, by parties that both sides would agree are credible and maybe have the imprimatur of the UN on that coalition to give it some credibility. But the key is this, is their willingness of the parties to the conflict to support the peacekeeping regimen. And right now, it is very difficult to see how that can be brought together. If if we can get both Russia and the Ukraine to agree, then <clears throat> there are several things that have to be implemented to include a demilitarized zone, uh, peace enforcers, peace observers, uh, exchange of prisoners and and uh, uh, civilians held against their will, uh, war reparations. It's extremely difficult. Uh, and so we have a lot to happen, I think, before we can get to a place where a realistic peacekeeping operation can be put in place in Ukraine. Colonel, it, uh, uh, sort of bracing advice, and I think we, we, you're right that we shouldn't be too giddy with optimism that there's a, a peace around the corner with regard to Ukraine. But I, I want to, as we come to the end of our time, I want to, I want to bring us back to something a little bit hopeful, and I. I had an experience in college where one of my fellow students had grown up in Cyprus. And the story that he told about peacekeeping, which of course connected to the Canadians, which is why he told me, was that when he was a kid, there was this uh, moment where the, uh, his neighborhood, all the men and boys were rounded up and taken to a soccer field, and he was at least convinced they're all going to get shot. And in came uh, the Canadians. Uh, to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's going on here? And it was, you know, there was a lot of talk until everybody agreed to back, go back to their homes and so on. And the thing that struck me about his story was that he was not used to the idea 
that a military person or a police person could be other than his experience, which is a bully, often, uh, you know, somebody you wanted to steer clear of because they would want to bribe or they were violent and sort of all the things that he grew up kind of learning on the streets. But that what the peacekeepers did was model a different kind of person, a different kind of authority figure that led him to, you know, want to study in the U.S. and, and want to be involved in, in making his society rebuild. Did you in your research come across maybe not that you know elaborate a story but that that sense that the knock-on effect of peacekeeping it's not just the moment and it's not just the conflict of the moment but that the legacy it can leave in terms of giving hope to uh, to young people and modeling a different kind of behavior might also be something that we that we can look to as a benefit of taking on these kind of missions absolutely no doubt about it when you get into Yanks and Blue Berets, you're going to read stories about American peacekeepers that are chronicled nowhere else. For the first time, you know, I can't tell you how many of these former peacekeepers, to include uh, Mike Fallon, who said to me, Scott, I've been waiting for years for someone to step up and write this story. So let me begin to tell you what my experience was. And these guys poured out their souls. They shared their experiences, they shared the good times, they shared the bad times, and it was fascinating. I mean, a great deal of my book deals with the conflict in southern Lebanon from 1978 to 1982, which we used to call the Wild West without a good saloon. I mean, it was a very, very dangerous place. In fact, ceasefires in southern Lebanon, the way I say in the book, ceasefires were actually fragile periods of attenuated violence. So, so it was a very, very dangerous thing. And yes, I think that readers will discover that we discovered that we, in fact, could have a positive influence uh, on violence between contending sides. There's, there is something that can be exceedingly naughty, though, and that is the nature of multi-layered conflict. This is something that we learned, and I write about in the book. I call it the intolerance of ambiguity, which is really, Chris, an attitude of those who are unable or unwilling to recognize the multifaceted, multi-generational, and stratified nature of conflict in the Middle East. Most of us who showed up there, Americans, Canadians, and everybody else, didn't begin to appreciate how difficult that was. And, and what you see, and you see it today, is, is there, that when people are confronted with the profundity of, of the peacekeeping challenge, they, they tend to exhibit an intolerance of ambiguity that they think if they can find some simple common denominator that will uncomplicate the conflict and make it digestible, oh, if just the Arabs and the Israelis would just get along, everything would be fine. That, com that completely ignores all the inherent conflicts within Arab society, the inherent conflicts within Israeli society, the outside influences on those conflicts from, from other countries. And so it's very, very important to understand that peacekeeping is a complex business. And when you send people in to do peacekeeping, they cannot fall prey 
to the intolerance of ambiguity. They have to understand the nature of the conflict that's in their lap. And if they do, Chris, if they do, Scotty, then remarkably good things happen. And I write about those in this book. And I think readers will be truly impressed with the professionalism of Yanks and Blue Berets and our Canadian brothers who were there as well, uh, who worked just like we did every day to prove the cynics wrong, that we, in fact, could make a difference. And I believe we did it. And so it's very important, however, that good, well-trained uh, UN observers rely on their wits also. Uh, and that really means pulling forward uh, some of the skills you learned as a warrior uh, and apply them in a credible way uh, to peacekeeping. And it can be done, but it is not easy. Absolutely. Well, I, I th thank you, Colonel. And I wanted to mention for the listeners, the book's full title is Yanks and Blue Berets, American UN Peacekeepers in the Middle East. It came out notably on the 4th of July uh, in 2023, a great release date, I, I'm sure symbolic in many ways. And it's from the University Press of Kentucky. Uh, Kate, just so you know who's putting this out, I always feel like the publisher deserves a shout out as well for taking a chance on a good book. Um, but thank you, Colonel, for taking a chance on us and being uh, willing to come and, and share your story and share a little bit about the book here on Canusa Street. Well, and Chris, before we wrap, and Colonel, before you say your last word, I just want to point one last thing out, um, which is in your in your introduction, you really tell a story of some remarkable uh, people, remarkable military people, and you highlight them all by name. But but I want to I want to uh, just take this moment to say you write. I would be remiss, however, if I did not highlight the role of Colonel Mike Fallon played in not only providing input into the work, but for his courage and unique participation in establishing UNIFIL following the Israeli invasion of southern Lebanon. He provided remarkable details on how UNIFIL came into being, et cetera, et cetera. And then you say, quote, he was gallant and determined in the finest traditions of combat-trained American officer. In many ways, his performance of duty was also characteristic of many who served, we were all in, as the saying goes, but Fallon was extra all in, regardless of the danger. He was an exemplary Yank in Blue Beret. So thank you for writing about your story, my brother's story, and all of these really uh, instrumental service members from Canada, the United States, and around the world uh, who did their best in the Middle East. So I just wanted to say thanks for that. Well, Thank you for saying that. And of course, all those contributors, and there are many of them in the book, um, shared this notion. And, and, and I wrote about this in 1981. No, there was no high minded debating or doctrinal machinations uh, were required, just hard work, resourcefulness, patience, decisiveness, wits and a steely-eyed determination to exemplify the kind of leadership and good judgment we knew would be required for peacekeeping despite our warrior instincts. The truth is, my colleagues and I, and the, the many that I write about in this book, relied on a presence of mind and a keen focus on the peacekeeping mission at hand and our wits. We did not have the benefit 
of weapons of war strapped to our waist or slung over our shoulder. What we had was creativity, focus, and the ter- the, ter- the determination to de-escalate and resolve conflicts where all where all we had, those were the things we had, determination to de-escalate and resolve conflicts. Those were the only things we had in our peacekeeping holster. And so that well, took people to do. And I was very blessed to serve with them. And it's and it's really hard to do. Uh, and, you know, um, Colonel and Chris, I have found in, in my life as a military brat that the people who want peace the most are the people who have served in the military and who have seen and participated in war. They are the ones that want peace the most. And I hope that um, some of the lessons from Yanks and Blue Berets can be applied maybe in the future to the situation in Haiti, which is dangerous, to the to the various hot spots in the world, and there are many, uh, where we really need peace. Um, and so if, if we can help uh, get there through learning, through looking back to as we plan for it, I think that's amazing. So anyway, I add my thanks to Chris's Colonel for your uh, joining us on the podcast and uh, for writing the book and for serving in the legislature. We didn't even talk about that. We can do a whole thing on politics next time you're on. How about that? If you want to, I'd be glad to. Uh, although I have to say, I love being a soldier. I love being a politician less, but I love, love, love being a grandfather. I can tell oh, you. I bet. that's amazing well thank you so much you bet well Chris this is not going to be a big surprise that this is my favorite podcast of all time because I get to brag about my big brother Colonel Mike Fallon United States Marine Corps the Nobel Prize that he and every every one of his comrades won uh, in 1988 that he didn't know about until this book came out. So thank you to Colonel Scott Lingenfelter for writing the book, for talking to us, for coming on the podcast, and for letting the guys know that they won a Nobel Prize. That's no small thing. No small thing at all. And remember that Nobel Prize covered the Canadians involved as well. I mean, it really is an international effort. And so many people who we know on both sides of Canusa Street have taken real risks for peace and stuck themselves out there. And it isn't, there's a romantic element of it. We think, oh, peacekeeping is very noble, but it's hard work. It requires absolute professionalism and real guts because you're not hiding behind, you know, a whole row of tanks. You're in close to people and you're, you have to find that professionalism in yourself to not be goaded into conflict. It, as the colonel said, when somebody steals your gear or 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 you're in a situation where y- your instinct might be to push back, but you have to rein that back in and model peace in the way that you deal with people. Well, yeah. And in the book outlines, you're in a war zone and you're unarmed. And, you know, yeah. for special forces guys like my brother, that had to be a heck of a a heck of a situation. But I'll tell you, the other link, if you will, is to modern day, um, is we're about to start a big presidential campaign here in the United States of America. And there is a former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, who is running for president. So you think about the U.N., and and I think a lot of people right now think about climate change because the U.N. is uh, trying to forge global consensus and, and enforce it on climate change. But peacekeeping is something that hasn't been in the news lately. But you've got a U.N. ambassador running for president and, of course, a former U.N. ambassador who was uh, ambassador to Canada. That's that's uh, the Honorable Kelly Craft. So 
Uh, the UN is, I think, um, I don't know if I want to say it's seeing a resurgence, but I think it's something that people that came up in the 80s talked a lot about, about a lot about, um, perhaps not since then, but I think now is the time again to be thinking about the role of the UN in the world. The, the role of the UN and, and what things we turn to the UN to do that may have to be done because they're worth doing uh, outside the UN. And I think about peacekeeping and the difficulty of getting Russia and China not to veto missions if they're not 100% happy or if they're trying to send a message. This work is important. And if, if, peop we, are, if we have the means, we really have to take those risks uh, and get involved in, in situations. And if the UN is an umbrella for that, fantastic. The Blue Berets are very fetching, uh, but uh, the main thing is it's the troops, it's the people. That's the irreplaceable part. And uh, we, there's so much conflict in the world. Uh, it's just great that Canadians and Americans together have found ways to, to counter it. That's exactly right. Well, always good to see you, my friend, and uh, we'll see you next time on Canusa Street. I'm looking forward to it already. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, Help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.